We're going to look at John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, I want to look today at verses 1 through 18. Next week, we will look at verses 19 through the end of the chapter. And then on the 27th, Pastor Greg is going to take us through chapter 21, and that'll be it for John. So counting today, three more sermons in this sermon series, and then we're moving on into First and Second Thessalonians. All right, so you've had time now to turn to John. Let's read together verses 1 through 18. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then also went in, saw and believed, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I've not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he said to her. Let's pray. Jesus, as we look at this inspired and recorded word, giving us an account of the empty tomb, which you once laid dead in. As we contemplate the significance of the resurrection for our own lives and for what you've called us to do. And as we, as we seek to, to draw out of your word some truth to guide us, some truth to inspire us, and some, some truth to help us build your church upon. God, would you speak to us? Give us eyes that can see, ears that hear, minds that understand, hearts that are eager to obey. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We left off last week with Jesus in the grave. And the significance of, of Jesus' death cannot be overstated. What Jesus accomplished in dying on the cross in our place as a substitution for you and I, that 
that's worthy of a million sermons. That's, that's worthy of, of, of more attention than we could ever possibly give it. But, but the reality is, is that where we left off last week, Jesus was still dead. At least Jesus, the man, in bodily form, was lying in a grave. You might remember they didn't want to leave him on the cross past sundown on Friday. And so they started, along with the other criminals, making sure they were dead, basically. And they accomplished that with Jesus by piercing his side. And they confirmed that he indeed was dead. And they placed him in a tomb. And there he lie. There he was until Sunday morning. And we come to this passage and we see that some of his disciples come to, and to well, really it begins with the ladies and, and we're told here specifically about Mary Magdalene coming, but we know from the other gospels that the other, there were other ladies that were with her and they wanted to take care of his body. There was a process that needed to be followed after someone was deceased, just like there is today. There's a process. That process mostly happens behind closed doors. It was something that the family and friends and public would have been more aware of and involved in in those days, but there was a process. And so they came to continue to care for his deceased body and they are hit with this unbelievable reality that Jesus is not there. His body is no longer in the grave. In fact, to this day, no one has ever found the body of Jesus Christ. Now, lots of people have disappeared, right? Lots of people have had, had their... Um, their bodies never discovered, or perhaps their bodies intentionally hidden. And, and that's not all that unusual. What's unusual is that this, that this man in particular died a death that was brought about because of all of the leaders on both the, the Jewish side and the Roman side desired for him to be dead. He was causing too much trouble. He was causing too much trouble for the Jews because he was drawing Jewish people away from them as teachers and leaders in the church. He was causing too much trouble for the Romans because the Jews were getting worked up. And if they didn't stop this soon, there was going to be some sort of uprising that was going to put their jobs and their lives in danger. And so they wanted him dead and not just dead, but they wanted everybody to know he was dead. And so they actually placed guards at his tomb. Imagine that. They placed guards at his tomb. They sealed up the tomb. They placed guards there to make sure that nobody would come and sneak his body away. And yet Jesus is not there. What I want to do today is I want to consider three, three truths that, that might encourage us and guide us and, and help us Three truths that we can glean from this story of Jesus's resurrection. The first one, if you look at your handout, is this. The first truth is Jesus conquered death and left behind an empty tomb. Jesus conquered death and left behind an empty tomb. Why is he not there? Why have they not discovered Jesus's body to this day? 
because he didn't stay dead. He conquered death. If, if last week when we looked at the cross, the, 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 the thing that we needed to know was that Jesus died for sins, the thing that we need to know from the resurrection is that Jesus has conquered death. If, if you were to, if I were to boil down our two greatest problems, our two greatest enemies in life as human beings, if I were to boil down all of our enemies, I should say into just two, I would say our biggest problems, our biggest enemies are sin and death. If we can find a way to fix those two problems, if we can find a way to deal with sin, to stop it from happening, to deal with its inevitable consequences, to make payment for, for, for its penalties, if we can find a way to deal with sin, we're, we're off to a good start. But the problem that we still have is that we still die. We must find a way to deal with death but we can't, but Jesus has. He dies for our sins and he raises, he, he rises, <laughs> he rises to conquer death. He leaves behind an empty tomb. Let's look at the passage again. On the first day, this is verse one, on the first day of the week, that's Sunday morning, Jesus was crucified on, on Friday, placed in the tomb Friday evening, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved and said to them, remember the one that Jesus loved is, is John who's writing this account. He doesn't use his name. He simply refers to himself uh, in regards to Jesus's love for him. And she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. These people have been through so much. They have watched the excruciating death of their, their dearest friend, their leader, their Messiah. They had to deal with the reality of seeing his body hanging on the cross. They had to deal with the reality of, of seeing them shove that, that spear into his side to confirm his death. They had to deal with the reality of seeing his, his badly battered body, his mutilated body taken down off the cross and placed into a tomb. And now they're, they're seeking to to engage in the grieving and the mourning process. And they just simply want things to stop going wrong. They want to be able to mourn and to grieve over his dead body. And now somebody has stolen his body. So she runs and she, she tells the, the disciples who are off hiding at this point, they fear for their own lives. They are in danger themselves of death. And she says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple, that's John, went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Now you might think that's pretty petty. 
of John to include that detail. Hey, just in case anybody's wondering, I'm a faster runner than Peter, right? But we have to assume there's greater significance. One of the things that, that uh, has, has sort of been drawn out of this is the idea that John was likely a young, very, very young person at this time, perhaps a teenager. Uh, that supports the idea that John writes this gospel much later in the first century than the other gospels. It supports the idea that John was probably the author of the book of Revelation, was, which was written at the end of the first century. And so, you know, perhaps there's, perhaps that's part of the reason why John includes this detail. It, it might be that there was conflicting stories about who got there first. And, you know, perhaps people were saying, well, Peter got there first and Peter had the most to lose. And so of course he hid the, you know, he, he's clarifying something that, that we might not be privy to. Nonetheless, John gets there first. Stooping down, he doesn't go in. He stoops down to look. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now the tomb presumably was carved into a, into a large rocky hillside or something. So it was, it, was, it was a tomb that you actually would enter into through a small opening. They had to stoop down. That's consistent with archaeology that, that we see these tombs. They didn't have six-foot doors. They, they would have a smaller door that you'd have to stoop down to get into. There was, there was a couple reasons for that. One is they have to cover that hole with something. And so the bigger the hole is, the harder it's going to be to cover it. Uh, but you have to stoop down, you look in, and, and the tombs of that day would have some sort of bench sitting around. If this was a large tomb, there would have been different places where you could put multiple, multiple bodies. And so they, they look in, and, and Jesus is supposed to be laid out on that bench. And John looks in, and he sees that he's not there. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. Peter goes in. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in and saw and believed. Now, what did he believe? He did not believe in Jesus' resurrection at that moment. He believed the report of Mary that Jesus was not there. They've inspected the tomb. He's gone. It's not a big enough tomb that he's, that he's somehow hidden in there. They've gone in, they've looked around. There's no Jesus. There's nobody in there because this was a brand new tomb. It's, it's empty except for some linen cloths not just any linen cloths, but the linen cloths that were used to, to wrap Jesus's body. Where has he gone? That's incredible to, to think. Dead people, because dead people don't just get up and leave. They don't just disappear. It's possible that somebody has taken him somewhere else, but everything is, but, but, but why would they go to the trouble? I mean, especially in, in the situation of Jesus's body being so mutilated and just not to be graphic, but open, open flesh, open wounds, 
nearly from head to toe. I mean, he was, his body was destroyed. If you were gonna carry Jesus's body somewhere, you would not get him, you wouldn't take the linen cloths off and carry him away. You would be happy that those were there as some sort of buffer between your body and his. He's not there though. The reason for this and the foundation of the Christian gospel is not that he has been stolen. The reason for this is that he has conquered death. Jesus vacated the tomb once and for all, never to return. He will never for all of eternity die again. He has conquered death. Excuse me. Just two days prior, he dealt with one of our greatest enemies, sin. He has provided a solution for sin. And now here on Sunday morning, he has has conquered our second greatest enemy. He has conquered death. The implications of this are not just for, for Jesus himself. The implications for this of this are for all believers everywhere, all throughout history. He has conquered death on our behalf. Because his tomb is empty, so will ours be. Because he rose, so will we. Because he lives, so will you. The beauty of the empty tomb, the beauty of, of what we see here in chapter 20 is that death has been conquered. Do you remember back in John chapter 11 when Jesus shows up at Lazarus's funeral, one of his closest friends? He shows up at Lazarus's funeral and his, Lazarus's two sisters, Mary and Martha, are grieving. And they're, 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 they're sort of, you know, people say things when they're grieving and when they're, they're mourning and they're, they're blowing off a little bit of steam and they say to Jesus, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened to him. And Jesus says to Martha, says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. That was way back in John chapter 11, which in our sermon series was back, I believe, in the fall sometime. But in, in Jesus' timeline, that was just a week. That was a week, a week ago. That was just a little, little over a week ago. In, in the story of, of John's gospel, Jesus is saying things like, I am the resurrection and the life. And here we are at the empty tomb of Jesus, and he's not there. He has conquered death. You and I... Our, our faith is built on the foundation of death being defeated. Our faith and, and our salvation flows out of this essential truth that Jesus did not remain in the grave, that Jesus did not remain dead, that he has risen and he has left behind once and for all an empty tomb. There are a couple of sites in Jerusalem that are, uh, let's say, ascribed this, this specific instance of Jesus' life. 
There's the traditional site, which I believe was established um, after Constantine's conversion, but I'm not 100% sure when people first started saying that that particular, the, the traditional site was where Jesus was buried. But there's a church there now called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And you can go in and you can see the tomb that they believe Jesus was laid in. And then uh, more recently, I believe, I believe early 1900s, a little over 100 years ago, or the end of the 1800s, there was another tomb that was discovered. And there's, there's, there's an argument for, for both. There's an argument that can be made to say that, no, this is, this is where Jesus was buried. And the argument for the other one sounds just as good. <laughs> they both make good arguments. But you know what they both have in common? They're both empty. <laughs> There's nobody in them. There has never been discovered a tomb burying Jesus's body. We can't find the bones. We can't, I don't know, it's been 2,000 years. I don't know if anything would be left, perhaps the teeth. We can't, we can't find any evidence of Jesus's dead body because there is none. He is left behind an empty tomb. The implications of that for you and I are, are, are so many. We too will live forever. I hate death. I hate death. But death has been defeated. That doesn't mean it's been completely, completely removed, that, that, that all pain or that all fear has been completely removed. But it does, without any doubt, mean that in the end, death is a defeated enemy. You and I no longer have to fear death. Our Savior too once died, but he came back having conquered death and he left behind an empty tomb. And so will you and I. So Jesus conquered de death and left behind an empty tomb. This, the second thing on the handout that I wanna draw out of chapter 20 here is this idea that Jesus's biggest miracles his biggest miracles, his greatest works often happen when we don't understand what he's doing. His biggest miracles often happen when we don't understand what he is doing. For this, I wanna look back at, 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 at verse nine. I'm gonna pick up in verse nine. Let me make sure you've had a chance. To, to fill in the blanks, Jesus' biggest miracles often happen when we don't understand what he's doing. Now, if we look at verse 9, it says, For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now this time, things have changed. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying. One at the head and the other at the feet. It's a sig 
significant detail going back to Old Testament ceremonial law, the Ark of the Covenant, and you would have uh, you would have angels at either end of the Ark of the Covenant, and that is the place where atonement for sin would be made. And so there's some Old Testament significance here. But she sees these two angels, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Only, only angels can get away with asking a question like that. I've got three women living in the house with me. I've learned that's not a good question to ask. There are perhaps better ways of saying it, but angels can get away with it. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you are seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me what, where you've put him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me. How far am I supposed to go? Nope, that's where we stop. <laughs> Verse nine says that they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead, referring to the disciples who had came to look and, and they, they see the empty tomb. And so they return to the place where they're staying and we'll see this next week. They're, they're kind of holed up in, in, in a place that they consider safe. They've got the doors locked. They don't wanna, they don't wanna be out and about in public. They're afraid of what's gonna happen next. And so they look, they see, they don't understand. They don't know what's going on. And then we, then we hear the same of Mary. She stands outside the tomb, she's crying. She doesn't know where Jesus has gone. Someone asks her what's wrong. And she says, I don't know where Jesus is at. He's supposed to be right here. Somebody's taken him. Jesus does some of his best work when we're the most confused about what he's doing. I can think of so many instances from my, from my own life, excuse me, moments of, not just moments, seasons of chaos, seasons of confusion, seasons of questions and doubts, God, what are you doing? Jesus, where are you? What is all of this about? Why, why are we going through this? And I've learned that Jesus does some of his best work in those seasons. Some of his biggest miracles happen when we don't understand what he's doing. This is a scene of desperation. Mary went and told the disciples Jesus' body isn't there and they sprinted. How often do you sprint? <laughs> the situation has to be se severe and serious and that's what's going on with them out of desperation, out of fear. I, I don't know what's going through their minds. They, 
they get there as fast as they can. I remember, I don't, I don't want to get into this story. Many of you know the story of, of my daughter Reagan's trials early on in her life and certainly has ongoing trials, but there was a time when she was um, six days old that we took her to the pediatrician and I was outside of the pediatrician's office hanging out with Reese, just keeping her busy. She was about 18 months old at the time. And I, and, and this was at Catanning Hospital, which the pediatrician's office is on the same campus as the hospital, but not in the same building. And um, I'm outside with Reese and all of a sudden the pediatrician holding my daughter comes out of the building sprinting for the emergency room. When, when you see a doctor running, that's concerning. When he has your daughter in his hands, that's devastating, right? There's, there's a desperation to the scene here. There's a desperation to what the disciples are experiencing. They're confused, they're overwhelmed, they're devastated, they're undone. And Jesus is doing his greatest work. I prefer for Jesus to work through calm, pleasant seasons of life, <laughs> right? It isn't, isn't it better when, when Jesus works through the joyful times? But the reality is, is that, that the way this whole thing works, the way the universe is ordered is that, that sometimes what we really need God to do in our lives can only happen through, I don't want to say chaos but difficult situations there's no greater pain than grief i don't think things could be any worse for them they're they're totally devastated and jesus is working He's working to bring about a greater good. He's working to bring about a better future, a better reality than he could otherwise have accomplished. What Jesus is doing could not be done without all of the pain and without all of the, the confusion and the chaos Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look in. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. I don't want to get too allegorical here, but sometimes what you're saying, where is Jesus? He's right next to you doing what he intended to do all along, and you just don't know it's him. You just don't know he's there. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you are seeking? Supposing he was the gardener. There's a subtle there's a subtle hint towards back 
back towards Genesis 1 and 2. God's original plan for his creation was the Garden of Eden. God's original plan for, for, his, for his creation, specifically for us as human beings, was to live in this peaceful relationship with him. And what he's accomplishing through the cross, what he's accomplishing throughout all of redemptive history is bringing us back, in a sense, to the garden. And now he doesn't just bring us back to what the garden was. He, he actually takes us to what the garden was destined to become. And, 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 and here we are. Why did she think, suppose that he's the gardener? Perhaps because that's who he is. <laughs> he is the God who walked with man for the first time in the Garden of Eden and has longed to bring us back to that relationship with him. And that's what Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave are seeking to accomplish. So she says to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. In the midst of her confusion, in the midst of all of the chaos of what she's going through, in the midst of her grief, there's Jesus standing right next to her and she doesn't even know it. And then when the time is right, he reveals himself. Mary, turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni. It's him. <laughs> it's Jesus standing right there. Last time she saw him, he was dead. She came here to care for his, his deceased body. She, and her grief has been compounded by the fact that somebody has taken him away. And then he finally reveals himself. It would be nice if in our times, it, it, let me say it this way, it would be nice if our seasons of not understanding what God is doing, our seasons of not being able to see him at work in our lives, our seasons of grief and pain and suffering where we're, where we're like, where's Jesus in all of this? It would be nice if they only lasted as long as Mary's. Essentially from Friday morning to Sunday morning is, is her period. You, you can get through a bad weekend. Sometimes Jesus asks us to wait much longer before he reveals to us himself and what he's doing. That's where faith comes in. That's where we have to trust and to believe that he is at work. When we don't understand what he's doing, it's possible that he's doing some of his greatest work in our lives. When we don't understand why we can't see him, when we don't understand why he's not where we expected him to be, perhaps that's when he's doing his greatest work. But that takes faith. That takes tremendous faith. And the greater the grief, the more faith you're going to have to have. And we have to stand on things like Romans 8, 28, which says that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. We have to believe that Jesus is he's working through these difficult circumstances. He is, he's, 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 putting together a plan that includes all kinds of things that we would never put in the plan. But he's doing it for our good. 
He's doing, he's working when we can't see him. And when we don't recognize him at work, it doesn't mean he's not there. It just means we must stand in faith. We must believe. We must, Jesus told them this was gonna happen and they didn't get it. That's okay. You don't have to get it either. I remember when we were going through Ecclesiastes and Pastor Greg preached the sermon and, and, and I can't remember if this was part of the title, but I remember something he said. He says, you're on a need to know basis and right now you don't need to know. That's hard and it's true. Sometimes God is doing things that we would like to know what's going on but we don't need to know. All we need to do is obey him. All we need to do is have faith and to trust him. If we can't do that, what are we saying about who we believe him to be? Lastly, we've looked at two things. Jesus conquered death and left behind an empty tomb. Jesus' biggest miracles often happen when we don't understand what he's doing. Lastly, I want to say that Jesus loves to use unlikely witnesses. He love, loves to use unlikely witnesses. This is the kind of, this is the kind of God he is. And this is, this is just delightful to look at. Let's look at verse 17. How does Jesus respond to Mary? So Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned, she said to him, this is verse 16. I'm just getting us ready for 17. Uh, Turning to him, she said in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Then Jesus says, don't cling to me. Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what he said to her. Now, if you saw a loved one back from death, what would you want to do? Cling to them. (laughs) This is it. This is everything I wanted. This is what I prayed for. Let me stay here with you. And yet Jesus sends her away. He gives her a job to do. That's because the place that we live in, in human history, our our place in time is not the time of just joyful um, and eternal bliss in God's presence. Our time in redemptive history is a time of mission. It's a time of work. We're, we're, we're still punched in. The weekend is coming or vacation is coming. The time is coming when we will rest from our work. The time is coming when we will be with him forever. But right now it's time to work. There's work that needs to be done. You're on the clock. And so Jesus lets her know this isn't the end. This isn't, this isn't eternity together. It's not just, okay, I'm back from the dead and, and you got what you wanted. Now let's just never leave each other again. 
don't cling to me. The work isn't done. Don't cling to me since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary becomes the first witness of the resurrected Jesus. Mary Magdalene. Well, who's Mary Magdalene? Luke 8 tells us that Jesus had cast seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. I've known some women with some sketchy pasts. I've never known any who had seven demons. I've met a few that I suspected had three or four, but I don't know if I've ever, this, this is an unlikely witness. And Jesus loves to use unlikely witnesses. Isn't that one of the great things about the gospel? Is she's not in any other way qualified other than she's seen Jesus. She's a, she is a woman living in the first in first century in the first century Roman Empire with a sketchy past. Nobody in their right mind would invite her to be the first witness to the resurrection savior of the world. She is a woman of zero significance to the world and of utmost value and love and importance to Jesus. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. You know, for, for the last couple of years, Jesus has had these close disciples, these 12 men, and one of them's gone now. We know what happens with Judas. He betrayed Jesus. But you still have Peter, James, and John. And that was Jesus's inner circle. That, those were the ones that Jesus did his, his most significant acts of ministry with. Peter, James, and John were never left out of anything. When Jesus, when Jesus was transfigured and revealed himself to be the son of God, it was to Peter, James, and John. I mean, they're always there. If, if Jesus is going to choose and to commission someone to be the first witness uh, to the resurrection of the savior of the world, you'd think it's gonna be Peter, James, or John. But he chooses Mary. And they weren't, not that they were like qualified either. Makes me think back to John 4, when Jesus goes to that town of Samaria and he meets the woman at the well. Remember the one, the, the woman who had five husbands and the, the man she was living with now was not her husband. She was working on her sixth husband. And he chooses that lady to take the gospel to that town in Samaria and to introduce to these, these people living in darkness, the savior of the world. He loves this. He loves this. He picks fishermen from Galilee to be his, his, the leaders of his church. Fishermen from Galilee. Nobody, was, nobody would, would have expected fishermen of Galilee. You've got religious leaders who have, their, their entire lives have been devoted to, to knowing the word of God and to teaching the word of God and they're uh, esteemed and respected among men. And Jesus passes them right by and he picks some fishermen. He builds, he builds his church through these unlikely witnesses. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. 
And she told them what he had said to her. So I want to invite you to be his witness. I want to invite you to perhaps be another in a long line of unlikely witnesses. I, I didn't do anything with my life before Christ that I'd say made me especially unlikely to be his witness, but I certainly wasn't living a life that people expected to lead to pastoral ministry. <laughs> In fact, I'd run into friends when I got out of high school. I'd run into friends, you know, a few years later, whatever. And they're like, what are you up to, you know? And, and I'm like, ah, oh, I got to tell them. I got to tell them. And then it's going to get weird. And then they're not going to know what to say. I'm like, I'm a pastor now. They're like, oh, you're a pastor now. But I'm just one of, of many unlikely witnesses whom Jesus has called to go and to declare the gospel, to declare the good news of the risen Savior, that the tomb is empty, that Jesus has conquered death, and that while everyone thought that the, the plan had completely fallen apart, he was working, he was doing, in fact, some of his greatest work, and now she gets to go and testify. And now she gets to go and spread this good news of the gospel. Will you join her? Will you be a witness to the risen Savior? Will you be a witness to the empty tomb? Will you be a witness to the God who is working even through the chaos and the, the devastation and destruction of all of the horrible things that can happen to us in this life? Will you be one of his witnesses? With 150,000 people just right here within 20 minutes of where we're at right now, most of whom don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, I'd say we need more witnesses. We need more people to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, we want to help you. We want to equip you to do that. That Disciples Path series that we've started a series of six books that we're going through in our small groups that we're encouraging you to go through as a family or to go through with some friends or some coworkers. That's designed to equip you to be a witness. But you don't have to wait until you've been through, been through all the books and, and know all the answers. You can start with sharing what you know right now. Somebody in your life needs you to witness to them this week. Somebody does. Somebody, you say, well, I don't even know what to tell them. Tell them the tomb is empty. <laughs> That's a great conversation start. Hey, did you know Jesus' tomb is empty? <laughs> tell them something. Tell them something that, that we've talked about here today or tell them something that you know of the gospel and let God take it where all Mary did was go and tell the disciples, I've seen the Lord. The tomb is empty and I've seen him. And that sparked a movement of gospel sharing that for the past 2,000 years has, has, has led to billions of people hearing the gospel, including you and I. If Mary doesn't go tell the disciples the little that she knew in that moment, what would have happened? 
God wants you to share something that you know about him with somebody that you know this week. Will you be his witness?